Welcome. It is good to be with you all. Um, I think I've only done a couple of these. Like in 2020, I was brave and or foolish and talked about faith and politics at the same time. Um, like a couple weeks before that, that fun election. Um, but the purpose, I'm starting to call, I'm going to start calling these things gospel doctrine. And, and the purpose of doctrine is to help us better understand the gospel. And the more we get our minds wrapped around what the gospel is, the good news about Jesus, um, uh, it creates a culture that, that reflects the person of Jesus. Um, his, his compassion, his patience, his grace, his truth, everything that he is. And so tonight we're going to look at the authority of the scriptures, the foundation, a foundational doctrine, and part of it is just elaborating on what we do every Sunday, right? So Sunday I preach, every, after I finish every sermon text, I try to say something like this, uh, that, that God has spoken to us today, uh, his word is true, his word is trustworthy. And those are uh, it's common language for some of the technical theological terms that God has, God's word is inspired, so he speaks to us. Um, the, it's true, it, it's without error, that's the inerrancy of the scriptures. Uh, it's trustworthy, that's, that's the infallibility of the scriptures. In other words, um, the Bible's not deceive. it's not deceitful, right? It's telling you a true story. And so tonight what I want to do before we read, read a text and pray is um, it's going to be split into two parts. Um, I'd like us to just take a few minutes to meditate on what it means to say the scriptures are our authority, our sole rule for faith and life, um, that, that what it means to follow Jesus is to let the Bible be our primary source of authority in our lives, um, which is a big claim. And then second, for for our, you know, we all have friends and we have our own questions about, you know, if I'm going to trust the Bible, there's difficult things. So why do we, why do we hold this up and say this is true and trustworthy? Because um, if you're going to talk to a neighbor, they're going to have questions, you know, isn't it all just man-made anyway? And um, how do we know that the books we have are, are actually inspired and not just inspiring, right? Just literature that makes you feel good inside. So, that's going to be the second part, and then there'll be plenty of time for questions. And as always, like if this is starting a deeper existential crisis, <laughs> um, we're, you know, the, the session, the elders, I'd love to sit and chat more about this. So, um, yeah, let, let's, uh, let's get started. I'm going to read from the book of James. Um, From chapter 1, I'm going to read verses, I think it's 22, yeah, 22 to 25. And this is God's word, and it says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
I'll add verse 26 and 7. It's good. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is God's word. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray tonight that you would help us see Jesus uh, even as we uh, get our minds wrapped around what it means for you to speak to us. And so I pray you would grant us the humility to take up our cross, submit to Jesus' authority in the scriptures, and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, start with a question. Uh, how, how does the Bible function in, in your life, right? And one of the things we were told in seminary, right, is make, make a common practice to read through the Read through it. You've got you to gotta read through the Bible. And some people put even more pressure to read through it uh, once every year, right? I'll read through the whole thing. And then there are others who are just saying, well, it's just kind of collecting dust in my bookshelf. So that's more, more guilt for you. Or some see the Bible as um, it's there for a spiritual pick-me-up, right? And I feel lousy. Um, I'll go to my, the back of the Bible and say, Where, how does it help me when I'm depressed? Or, you know, it's, it's inspiring literature, or others will see it as um, a source of good advice, right? You can, this, this probably be Jordan, Jordan Peterson's way of looking at it. This is, this is a place where you can find wisdom to be a functional human being and a productive member of society and to um, suck less than, than the other people who aren't taking responsibility for themselves. Um, but what we say here at, at, at at Hope Church, and I think it's the, it's the argument, that the way Christians have always talked to the, about the Bible, it is, it is our rule for faith and life. Uh, this is the place where you turn to to hear God speak authoritatively to his people. And so when we say the Bible said it, we're saying God speaks to me, and because God speaks to me, Every nook and cranny of the word is God speaking to us with his authority because he's our creator. Um, and so, you know, we, we have these desires. We want to hear God speak, and we want to have that, that experience. And, and the, the traditional argument from the church <clears throat> is we have heard God speak, speak to us every, when we read the scriptures, when we see Jesus. So, you know, one way to evaluate how you see the Bible is, uh, when was the last time you did something simply because God said so in the Bible, right? It could be something as simple as forgive when you don't want to forgive. It could be, I'm praying, um, I'm being generous, you know, as James says, I'm visiting orphans or the widows in their affliction, going to church, loving your enemy, whatever it may be, right? But it, it, it reflects that attitude, that the Bible, the God in the Bible has the right to tell me what to do. <laughs> and so, let's take a couple minutes to, to meditate on this, and here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. <clears throat> this is chapter one. It's in the back of the, it should be printed on your paper there. Um, but I, I should have listed all the, the scripture references that go with it, but you can, you can Google it and find them. 
right? The Bible is our only rule for faith and life. And then it says in chapter 1, paragraph 4, the Bible speaks authoritatively and so deserves to be believed and obeyed. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but completely on God, its author, who is himself truth. The Bible, therefore, is to be accepted as true because it is the word of God. Um, if you've got questions about that, we can talk about it. But it's, it's interesting, the way, the way it's saying is God speaks, God is true, and therefore, because God speaks to us in this, it comes fully loaded uh, with his authority, and therefore we should trust it, believe it, and do what it commands. Uh, all right. trying, to, trying to say it black and white, and I know there's plenty of questions we can talk about later, but that's why I chose the James passage, because it's, it's really blunt, and it says, um, be doers of the word. Here's what you got to do. Um, and then it, it, it's interesting. It describes God's rule, God's commands, as perfect and as the law of liberty. <laughs> right? That's a pretty good advertisement for why you should do this, right? It'll set you free. Um, it is freeing to submit to the authority of the scriptures to, to do what it says. Right, so one way I like to think about it, right, when you, see, when you see an eagle soaring on the heights, right, it's, it's living as it's designed to, to be, and it's this beautiful, majestic creature, and, you know, not counting when it tears apart its prey, but, um, right, but, it, but when it's actually on the ground, right, and you try and watch an eagle walk, like, it's just clunky and awkward, and it's, it's you can tell it's not fully free, unless it's in the air, as it's designed to be. And, and part of what James is getting at here is to, to submit to God's authority, right? Is, is to submit to God's design for you, and that'll set you free. You'll be like an eagle soaring. Um, but if you're going to make your, anything else your authority, right? You're going to look a little bit like an eagle trying to walk, trying to run away. <laughs> um, so let, let's, let's think about this in a couple different ways. So here's, here's Pastor Tim Keller, right? He says, to be a Christian is to say I can no longer do what I want, whatever I want. I don't live the way I want to, to live. I belong to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, I'm giving up the right to determine how I ought to live. I, will, I willingly choose to put myself under the authority, under the rule of the Bible, under God's word. Right. And so if the Bible contradicts my wants, for the Christian, the Bible is correct if it's authoritative. Uh, it, it's going to correct me. It's going to change my thinking. It's going to change my beliefs, my wants, my hopes. Um, you're, you're willingly saying, Jesus, tell me what to do in this. <laughs> um, and so when the Bible corrects you, this is the, the Christian view, right? Jesus corrects me. When the Bible confronts me, it's Jesus confronting me. When the Bible comforts me, it's Jesus comforting me. It's his word. And so that's what the church is. It's a community of Jesus followers who have together willingly submitted to the Bible 
who, who say, I want to be the kind of person that does God's perfect law because God t- because the God who loves me tells me so. And of course, since we can't keep his perfect law, we confess our sin every week because God also tells us to do that. <laughs> um, it gets so specific that Martin Luther and the Reformation would say, right, famously, my conscience is uh, subject to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. <laughs> right, I can't. The only thing I can do is say, why do you do what you do? The Bible tells me so. So, I know from conversations with y'all, we're, we're, we've made that commitment. <laughs> but what other ways are there to think about this? Right? What other options are there thinking about authority in particular for Christians? Right? I, gotta, I want to narrow it down, right? In the history of the church, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they would say the Bible is a authority. Like it's, it's one authority, not the ultimate. Um, because how do you know what the Bible says? You need the church and tradition to tell you what the Bible means, which sets up functionally the church as the, the authority telling you what to do, what to think, what to believe. Um, Right, so that's, that's one way it has worked its way out in church history. Another way, especially I think this is more modern, is you know, my main authority in life is me and my reason and my ability to determine what is right and wrong and what, is, what's, what feels good and true. Um, yeah. And basically the way that works, works its way out is people have been doing this, especially since the Enlightenment, um, Look at parts of the Bible and say, yeah, that's inspiring, that's good, that's, that's wise. This part of the Bible offends me, let's, let's cut that out. Um, if, basically, if the Bible contradicts my morality or I find it offensive because I'm not feeling it, I can choose to ignore it. And so rather than seeing the Scripture as the authority to correct me, we put Scripture in the defendant's chair and say, I'm here to judge Scripture and figure out what's true for me. Which is very much the the Genesis three way of doing things, of you know, doing what, what looks right in my own eyes. Uh, or you submit to Scripture and say, Scripture is my authority. That's, that's the third view, right? And, and I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and i got to do all that hard work to figure out what in the world God is telling me to do in the Bible and, and pray, pray for wisdom. The problem with those other two views, um, well... Let's put it this way. Think back about yourself 10, 20 years ago. How, how did your reason, um, how did your decision-making process work for you? <laughs> Do you have regrets? Um, have you gotten to the point where you look back and say, yeah, that was a really bonehead decision. <laughs> I really wish I hadn't said those words. I really wish I had seen the world differently. Right, the, the difficulty with setting yourself up with, um, to, be, to be your own authority is we make questionable decisions all the time. And sometimes it takes years to figure out how questionable they are, but we make mistakes. Right? And it would be the same with the church, right? If, if you say the church is my authority and that, they tell me what to believe, 
the church has a whole long track record of making questionable decisions. I mean, just look at the history of our country. It doesn't take much imagination to say when a church says, you must do this, and then they make all kinds of questionable decisions. People start distrusting the Bible because the church has lived out what Jesus says they are sinners. Now, the, the portrait I, I'm hoping you, you get from, from James, it's, it's all throughout. We can, we can get specific texts later if you want. Is that the church comes together, that what makes the church beautiful is, is we all say together, I'm going to let the Bible judge me and rule over me. And so when I make a questionable decision, I need God to correct me. I need God's people to, to take this and say, hey, you screwed up. We love you. This is not God-honoring behavior, beliefs, etc. cetera. Right. So how do you feel about that? <laughs> um, right? It, it, it really does push you to say, if my only options as a Christian is to trust this, um, do I really believe it? And what, what makes me willing to trust this is because James calls it the, the law of liberty, and this is what makes it a gospel doctrine, uh, the fact, the authority of the scriptures, is because, think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, submitted himself perfectly under God's authority as it is written in the Old Testament. Right? We're not even talking about the New Testament anymore that we love. No, in the Old Testament, written in the Scriptures. So you think about Jesus when he has a choice, God's will or my will, uh, when he's being tempted in the wilderness. What does he say repeatedly? He says, it is written. In other words, God said it, it is written, therefore I must do what he says. Uh, when, when Jesus gets into arguments, he's constantly correcting their view of Scripture. And when he teaches, he teaches with authority. Um, he'll say to the, the Pharisees, right, have you not read what God wrote? <laughs> and you're looking for an authoritative answer, it's there, you just, you just don't know how to read um, or he'll say things like, you search the scriptures thinking it's about you gaining your own eternal life when all of the scriptures testify about me. Right? Meaning there's a right way and a wrong way to read it. You can submit to the authority of the Bible and completely miss the point of the message. And what, what makes this a law of liberty is just, just imagine Jesus reading Isaiah 53, right? You're hearing it read, most likely, because he would have heard it in the synagogue. At some point in his life, in his humanity, as the God-man, he would hear this description of the suffering servant and say, that's me. Here's what I must do to submit to God's will. Right? So when it says... This is a humbling thing, right? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. 
Jesus says, that's me. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And when you get to verse 10, it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so at some point, we don't really know. It's just Jesus says, according to the scriptures, I must do because it's written. Jesus heard God speak to him in the text and say, this is what I'm here to do. And I'm going to do it because I'm going to submit to the authority of God who speaks in his word. I mean, John gets even more explicit, right, where Jesus will say things like, I can't do anything without my father. Apart from my father, I can do nothing. I only say what my father tells me to say, and I only do what my father tells me to do. Things that we wish our kids said to us, <laughs> right? Now, for Jesus, the scriptures were the law of liberty. This was, this was him soaring, and when you read the New Testament Gospels and you see Jesus loving God and loving his neighbor, that's what that's what the majority of the testimony says. This is a beautiful person, full of wisdom, and he was formed to be that kind of person because he trusted the authority of the scriptures. And Christians just say, we want to do what Jesus did. Right? Jesus came to die for people who said, I'm going to do whatever feels right and seems right in my own eyes. He takes the punishment we, we deserve, the justice we deserve, so that we might look at God and, and, and see and trust his authority. Because when you see his, him use his authority to serve, that makes us willing to serve our master who first served us. And, and that's what happens in the gospel, right? We, we now have, by faith, are made righteous. And because we're by faith, we're made righteous in Jesus, we have the reputation of those who have kept God's perfect law as if we submitted to God's authority. Um, so, all right, here's, here's the way the church has always talked about this. The reason we trust the Bible and keep the scriptures and want to do what God says is because Jesus did. I mean, inherently it has authority, but for the church, what, what shapes us and what forms us is Jesus now rules over me through the scriptures. To trust Jesus is to trust the Bible, and to trust the Bible is to trust Jesus. And so if you're going to submit to the Bible's authority, you're, you're listening to the Word of God, which is what John calls them in John chapter 1. Right. So doesn't take away our questions, but it gives us a person to wrestle with. And so if you're going to ask, if you're going to be asked, Christian, why do you trust the Bible? I think one of the simplest places to start is, well, Jesus did to the point where he's willing to die for me in love so that I can live with him. And if his will is that good, <laughs> then I can trust him even when his will contradicts mine. Um, so that, this is part one, right? The scripture, once you become a Christian, 
you, by faith, it just becomes natural for the Bible to become authoritative because, as Jesus says, uh, my sheep hear my voice in John 10. And so when you hear, you hear his voice when you read scripture. So here's, here's some of the logic, right? If you want to say, okay, how do I trust this, this whole thing? Start with Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament says the Old Testament is true. It is written. And that it's authoritative over every culture and every place and every time. And then Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. And what you find, the more you read the New Testament, you can't, you, you can't not understand and go back and say, what does is, what is the Old Testament say? In other words, you read Genesis and you go, I don't know if I believe this stuff. This is weird. And then you read the, the Gospels and Jesus says uh, things like, well, in Noah, when I return, it's going to be like in Noah's day. He's going to say things like, you know, how, you know how you can think of my ministry? It's, it's like Jonah, stuck in the, in the darkness of a whale, like dead, buried below. In three days, you'll see God's, you'll see God's sign. Uh, he'll say things like, Abraham, how do, you, how do you believe in the resurrection? Well, he says, God, the God in the Old Testament says, um, I am the God of Jacob. Yeah, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac and Jacob. There we are. I get the order right. <laughs> And so, all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about these people as if they really lived and they are still living. So you go back and look at this and say, wait a second, this is telling a true story. And I can't make sense of the New Testament without starting to trust the old, because the Lord of the, the Lord in the New Testament is the Lord of the Old Testament. <laughs> that's, that's John chapter 1. So, a lot more can be said. But really what we're being forced into, I think, by the nature of the scriptures is to do the hard work of wrestling with what the Bible says, um, to let it speak to and against me despite what my current cultural moment and or feelings are. Um, let's see. Uh, let's talk about, let's switch gears. I don't want to go on too long because I want to leave time for questions. <clears throat> I've got a couple different things that we can talk about. If you're switching gears and say, okay, why should I trust the New Testament? Right? Why do I trust the testimony about Jesus? Right? We're, gonna, the, if we're talking about this idea of canon. Because right? the questions start to come up, or if you're in conversation, why should I trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why not the Gospel of Peter? Why not the Gospel of Thomas? Uh, why not... a uh, the Gospel of Hermes and, and, and First Clement and all these other things, so why aren't they in the Bible, right? Um, why don't we include other ancient letters? This guy was a bishop in AD 70. Um, so one of the resources I wanted to put in people's hands is it's, it's printed for you on your paper. <coughs> this is a from a scholar named Michael Kruger. Um, and basically what he did is simplify his much more in-depth book into 10 blog posts. And he calls it 10 facts that every Christian should memorize about canon. You know, here, are, here are 10 facts 
that show you how we got the New Testament that we have and that we can be at peace that what we have is true and trustworthy and authoritative. All right. Uh, let's see. I should have grabbed my paper. We got another one floating around. But basically, if you go to the, the, the link that is posted on the further reading, you can, you can get the, his explanation of each heading. So I'm not going to go through each and every one, but I'll run through a couple, right? So why do we, have, why do we trust the New Testament books? Well, they're the earliest Christian writings that we have. And... So when we start talking about the Gospel of Thomas, for example, right, this is second century after the initial, the first Christians, the first apostles have already died. And so you'll find, if you read the Gospel of Thomas, if you're willing and able to do the hard work, it's, it's worth reading in the sense of, like, why do people think this should be Scripture? Um, some parts will sound like, yeah, it sounds like New Testament Jesus, and then, there, then you get to some weird places where like, yeah, that doesn't sound anything like Jesus. Um, for example, some, I forget the context of why this question comes up, but Jesus says to, to Peter, James, and John, it is better for, you, for a woman to become a man in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? That doesn't sound like Jesus. <laughs> um, you get to, like, the gospel of, is it the gospel of Peter, I think, has... Has Jesus res- resurrected and walking out of the tomb and behind him is a giant, like, 40-foot tall, I think it's a cross that's talking, right? A little bit, this is a lot more mythological and, and strange and more, more Gnostic and more spiritualized. And so part of the arguments here is, is the re- the, everything you have in the New Testament is connected to an eyewitness of the resurrection. It's either directly from an apostle or approved by an apostle. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke hung out with Paul. Um, and you get, let's see, who am I thinking? Peter was an apostle. James was a brother of Jesus. Jude was a brother of Jesus. Um, you know, all these guys had resurrection appearances that gave them the authority to write these things down. Um, when we get into the New Testament, you'll find like Peter, this is number, fact number four, um, at the end of Second Peter, he'll say things like, yeah, you know Paul, yeah, you know Paul, he says really hard things. And people like to twist what he says to, to distort the gospel. Um, yeah, like they do other scriptures. And so all of a sudden, he jumps from Paul, Paul's authority from writing letters to the, the same authority as the other scriptures. So there was a sense, even as Peter was writing, and right from the beginning, that, yeah, that what Paul gave us is God speaking to us. You know, this is Jesus ruling his church through Paul's wisdom. Um, and some of the, the other interesting facts is um, when you start to get into the early church history, even in the second century, right, so in the 100s, most of what we have is already being read and submitted to by the church. And so when, 
when you get to 325 to the Council of Nicaea, um, they weren't saying, ah, these, these are the, the books of the Bible that, that make us look good, that makes the church powerful, and, and because, because we have this New Testament canon, you know, we got, we got the Roman Catholic Church, it's just going to keep everybody under their boot, right? That, that's, that's, the, that's the conspiracy theory out there. <laughs> really what they're saying, you know, this has been the practice of the church for the last couple hundred years, so let's just recognize with authority and, and agreement from the, the global church and say, here's where we hear God speak to us, and have been for the last couple hundred years. <laughs> I mean, there were some books that had, they had some disagreement about, but in general, all the Gospels, Paul's letters, um, Peter, the places we love where the Gospels just saturated, connected to the Old Testament, that they're the ones that are saying that are trustworthy. Um, so that's, I'll, I'll leave this for some questions in a minute. One other thing that I find, yeah, two, two quick things, right? The other piece you can look at is, okay, how do we know what we have today is accurate to, as to what was written back then? And that's, that's what this chart is about the manuscripts. I don't know if you've seen this before. Um, basically, right, you look at, you look at Homer's Iliad, and we, the, the, the earliest copy we have is 500 years after it was written. Caesar's Gallic Wars is 1,000 years after it was written, and the numbers keep getting bigger. When you get to the New Testament, right, we're talking 40 years from our earliest copies of the original Greek. And then we have something like 24,000 copies of ancient manuscripts to fill out the New Testament, which is, I mean, you, you see the numbers. I mean, the magnitude of how many more copies of the Bible, and you know, sometimes the copies are like little pieces that match up with other pieces of different Gospels, but still, you know, 24,000. So historically, that's about as confident as you can get without actually being there. No, just, just in general, like the, the copies that we have now of ancient uh, manuscripts of the Bible, um, they, we have 24,000 different copies. The 40 years is, if you go all the way back to the earliest manuscript that we have, it's only 40 years from the initial writing, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure exactly which. You'd have to read Kruger's book. He goes into more details, and it takes special people to be able to, to weed through all these manuscripts and do all the comparisons. And interestingly, it's a, it's, a whole, um, it's a whole academic path that you can take is to compare the manuscripts, and this is what people do, and they say, look, here's why we trust that the New Testament says what it said originally. is because there's... The, the main differences we have are like minor grammatic, grammatical errors in copying. Nothing is different that would affect any kind of major doctrine of the church. You know, sometimes it says Jesus, sometimes it says the Christ, sometimes it says Lord, sometimes they, 
leave out a, a definite article, you know, th those kind of grammatical things when everyone does copy work. And so for me, as a Christian, saying, okay, when I read the New Testament, this is about as accurate as you can get. I mean, it's not the original manuscripts, um, but historically, it's trustworthy, right? And there, what I like about most good translations, if there's a place where different translations and different manuscripts disagree, they'll have a little note for you, um, which is why we have different versions of the Lord's Prayer. Some, some have, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever, amen. Some don't. Um, and so then it's up to the Bible nerds to help us work that out. <laughs> but one of the other, the last piece, um, could you put up that graphic, Melanie? So the, one of the, the cool things is once you start to read the New Testament, that's what we, we talked about, how you can't read the New Testament without seeing the connections to the old. Um, what this is, is somebody, a graphic artist, took a visualization and said, let me show you the connections between every book of the Bible. And so the, the very first book, Genesis, right, you can see the, the lighter white shading. You can see how many lines are just launching out to Revelation and to all over, even within the Old Testament, right? And this, this line here is where, that's where the, the New Testament shift, that long line at the, actually, no, that's the length of the Bible. That's Psalm 119. If you go to the website, you can zoom all the way in and you can see where these things are, um, but it's just a beautiful portrait to say, okay, when we say, when Jesus said, all of the scriptures are about me. This is what he meant. <laughs> and to show that the Bible's one big unified story about Jesus, which is why we trust the whole thing and not just the parts that we prefer. Although, frankly, like Pastor Jim said, I'd rather have Romans 8 than, than 2 Chronicles <laughs> or the genealogy in Chronicles. But, but you get the idea is even in those, you, you can you can still learn wisdom from them. So I just wanted to put that in your hands because it's just a, it's a great conversation starter. When you say, why do you trust the Bible? You say, it's true, I think it's trustworthy, and when I look at that picture, I say, it's also beautiful literature. Um, and so when we say that it's inspired, God made something, a type of literature that we're just even now still starting to scratch the surface of to see how connected it is. Um, so I'll stop there. I was a big, I backed up the information dump truck and <laughs> just want to open it up for questions or pushback or clarification. <laughs> Is this new, different? Have you thought about it like this before? It's more for a dialogue. I'll come down here. I'd rather have had a podium down here, but I was too lazy to drag it. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah. I I think that's part of the argument for why this view isn't completely circular, right? Because when you say, say, I believe the Bible because it says it's the Word of God, and it's the Word of God because the Bible says so. I mean, that's functionally what Westminster said. (laughs) And part of what breaks the chain, I mean, any view of authority has to be circular by nature, but part of what breaks the view is, is the Holy Spirit working, I would argue, working through the, the text to confront, to change, to show us Jesus. I mean, that's Jesus' argument in John 14 through 16 is when, when he comes, he's going to remind you of the truth and he's going to convict the world of, uh, I believe it's sin, righteousness, and there's something else, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but I think the tricky part is if somebody's, I've, I've heard these situations, right? Um, a dude comes up to a girl and says, the Holy Spirit told me we're going to get married. You know, how do, how do you respond to that? Say, like, good for you. Get, or get away from me, creeper. <laughs> right? And how... Yeah. My sarcastic response would be, well, you tell me. Yeah. I mean, that's mine, too. And You know, so I, how do you not give the sarcastic response because that just puts people off? Yeah. I think the one, one response would be, um, does God really give that kind of specific information in, in Scripture that's binding on me? I don't know of of any where God does arrange marriage apart from Eve, right? And based on the kind of literature it is, it isn't saying this is the pattern and this is how it ought to be. He just says marriage is good. And so get married, be fruitful, multiply, model, model the gospel according in Ephesians, you know, those kind of things. So I think that would be the hard part is if, if, if you have another authority like the Holy Spirit telling me something, you would have to have a standard to evaluate whether what's said is true. And then for the Christian, we tend to say, okay, if, if, is what you are saying, uh, how does that jive with Scripture? Which still takes a lot of work depending on what's said. I mean, or if it's just a prophetic word, so to speak, of, you know, someone says, I'm thinking like Acts, you know, there's going to be a famine. How do you know? Well, you just kind of wait and see. <laughs> and maybe God showed them, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But if, if we're all submitting to the wisdom of the scriptures, that allows us to have a conversation rather than a top-down, God told me, that you, you better do this. <laughs> I don't know, that answer, is that the kind of question you're asking? Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, pretty wild. I think that's probably the big argument against some of the more extreme Pentecostal, uh, what's the word, distortions, or just the chaos that it can cause. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard enough to get Christians in the room to agree on secondary things, right? We all agree on Jesus, and he, he he died, he buried, 
died for our sins, he rose again, he's sitting at the right hand of God, and, you know, Nicene Creed type stuff. But when we get to the nitty-gritty details, it's hard enough to agree, much less throwing in someone, someone standing up in the room and saying, well, the Holy Spirit told me. <laughs> so you go, okay, maybe. And I'm willing to listen and, and consider it and pray about it and evaluate what you're saying with God's wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I have to think about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, that's the interesting thing, right? One of the things, what we're not saying is God has told us everything. He hasn't told us everything in the Word. He's told us what we need to believe and you know, love God, love your neighbor. It's an expression of, you know, believe in Jesus, love him, follow him, and follow his commandments. But, you know, all the different ways it's expressed... But he doesn't tell you which sock to put on first, <laughs> right? He lets you figure it out. Um, because a lot of what we have is called to live by the wisdom of Jesus in our particular cultural moment. And that's, that's the challenge. And why we have councils and denominational meetings and debates and disagreements ruled by Robert. Because <laughs> um, we try... When done well, anyway, and in good faith, and I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't always work that way, but it, when done well, where you're, you're wrestling over what the text says rather than yelling at each other. That's the dream. <laughs> but, well, I'll, I'm happy to bring this to a close. I just... Part of what I was thinking is, one, well, this will be good, it'll be up on the website. We just don't stop and think and say, Jesus is telling me what to do. I don't. You know, I'm, I'm reading the scripture, and I know in my head that the Bible is my rule and authority, but to come out and say these things in black and white is, is just like, oh, oh, yeah, this is what binds us together. This is how we live. This is how the church functions. You know, that's why our... That's why our statement of faith begins with chapter one on the doctrine of scripture. That was intentional on, on the, the Westminster authors. That's why our book of church order starts in the preface describing Jesus as the way, being the head of the church, and how does he rule the church with his word. Um, so it's, it's a good reminder as well as just giving some backup to our faith. Our faith has its reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think I think I will to some extent when we get into John. because um, there's so many places in John where he says something specifically John five, where they're I forget exactly what they're arguing over, but basically says, you know, you search the scriptures and think they're about you. 
uh, and your, about your eternal life. And Jesus says, no, I'll, Moses is, Moses is going to stand and condemn you because you don't submit to the scriptures. And the scriptures are about me, <laughs> which is a big radical claim. So, yeah, I was hoping we'd get a few more people, but it's too close to summer. <laughs> We've got to do it in winter when people have nothing else to do. <laughs> when it's not snowing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the way I preach is I, I often quote a lot of, I, I just like quotes. I like people who say something better than I can and give them credit for being brilliant. So I, part of what they're saying is like, they treated things like C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah, he said helpful things about Jesus. And so Christians would read First Clement. First Clement was a bishop in Rome. He wrote a letter dated to AD 70, it was something that was just passed around and people found value. And when you read it, he's quoting other things too. So it's, yeah, I mean, he, he quoted, we quote some scripture, but not as a Christian. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he was around. He, he's one of the non-Christian witnesses we have to Jesus's existence. And I think he talks about death and resurrection as well. They they worship him as, as a resurrected Lord. Uh, I'm trying to think. If there's others. I mean, the Didache is one of the first rules for the early church that Christians would read. Um, describing how to do baptism and just how the church functioned. But I mean, they were constantly reading letters as well. And, and when you read Paul's preaching, like in Acts, you know, he quoted non-Christians and said, you know, this is speaking truth. Just like you guys believe, the Bible's communicating this. So, you know, it, believing in the authority of the Bible doesn't mean we don't find value in other things. We just don't submit to them as the final authority. Um, which is a much different way of thinking. So I have a question. Yeah. Here in the uh, New Testament canon of the Society of Nicaea, when I was brought up Pagan, mm. or the 300s. Yeah. When was it? If it wasn't then. I think it was formalized at Nicaea. And so part of what that statement is pushing back against is the Dan Brown popularized it in the Da Vinci Code. In some of those views of, um, it's a very suspicious view of, of the institution, the church. But they, they argued that basically Constantine used religion to rule the masses. And they, they picked these books because it was good for them. It was good for the church. And, which makes zero sense once you start to get to the New Testament books because all the apostles look like idiots. Uh, 
by their own profession, you know, especially Peter, and they're written from the point of a persecuted minority. So it's not like it's set up to say, here's how you take over a culture and, and, and rule with terrifying authority. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was the major. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was a secondary thing where they just said, "Yeah, here's the books we're using in the church. Let's just formalize." They, they by then they had time to settle. Like, yeah, Revelation is part of the big story. Um, I'm trying to think some of the others that were questionable, but Second Peter. James, maybe. But, you know, that's, that's the one argument, the Muratorian, I forget how to say it, but, you know, by the end of the second century, 22 out of the 27 books we have were already just being treated as scripture. So it's, it's clunky and not as smooth as we would like. It would have been great if Jesus, in the 40 days he was risen and said, you, you, and you, you write this stuff down and, <laughs> right? <laughs> and just nail, let's, let's just solve all arguments now. And he didn't, he just, right. <laughs> yeah, if Jesus wrote it, man, we'd be even more trouble because... Kind of. Yeah, the. that chapter. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, that's some of the interesting things, right? You, got, you would have arguments where both sides have a, a pile of verses on their side, which forces you to dig into the context and become a student. Um, so the one example I was thinking of that I came across, one of my classmates from seminary wrote a book called The Bible Explained, um, an introduction to the Christian faith, but it's written, to, he's, he's a college minister at an African, at an HBCU, a historically black college university. And so he tells the story of a guy named John Jay, uh, who was a slave in the 1800s in New York, who, um, oh, I can read, read, with this, read what it was saying, because basically the master would beat them and then tell them, yeah, so here's his testimony. After our master had been treating us and this cruel master, we were obliged to thank him for the punishment that he had been inflicting on us, quoting that scripture, which said, bless the rod and him that hath appointed it. And then he goes on to say, though he was a professor of religion, he forgot that passage which saith, God is love and whoever dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. In other words, this dude had never read the Bible and he could tell um, that this person just, once he started to get to know the scriptures, he was distorting the scriptures for his own end. And that's part of Jay's story is, you know, he eventually, being forced to go to church, he got converted. The problem was once he got converted, you weren't allowed to enslave your fellow Christian. And so um, his master was afraid he was going to be converted. And every time he would go hear the Bible preached, he'd get beaten mercilessly. But he, he wanted to hear more about Christ to the point where he was willing to say, I'm, this is my suffering, my way of walking in the footsteps of my Savior. I'm going to suffer as he, because he suffered for me. And eventually, once he got converted and test, was able to be snuck out to testify to a magistrate and say, hey, I'm a Christian, they had to legally declare him free. And his master still wasn't satisfied. <laughs> He was bullying him and trying to say, don't you know what the Bible says? You know, slaves, slaves obey their masters and throwing all these scriptures at him, and he didn't know how to read. And what was fascinating, and this became famous in, in New York City, is as he was praying about this, saying, Lord, I'm going to be forced to be a slave again if you don't help me. He was supernaturally given the ability to read the Gospel of John. Only that one. They tested him. They couldn't read anything else. <laughs> Right? They say, can you read Matthew? Can you read Mark? Can you read Luke? Nope, nope, nope. But then he would just, in the beginning, was the word, and he could just read it. And there was no other explanation. And so I just went around that God, it's very similar to Acts, right? God in his spirit gave him the ability and, and the evidence of professing faith in Christ, speaking the word of God. And um, he earned his freedom and became a pastor. And trusting, he was basically saying, I'm going to trust the authority of the scriptures, but we need to talk about what the scriptures actually say. And that, that's where, the, where, where we get into it. I mean, even, even with tongues, it's not that horrific. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are good Bible-believing Christians that I'm going to see in heaven that are probably doing much better evangelistic work than I am um, because, because they love Jesus and they speak in tongues. And I don't. And I've never tried. I mean, I wish I could supernaturally speak other languages. That'd be sweet. <laughs> but, but, you know, in our denomination, you'll find 
people who would say that was, those were spiritual gifts given to the apostles to show proof of the resurrection that they were doing and, and highlighting the glory of it, and that's the cessationist view. And you'll find guys in our denomination that say, yeah, God, that is more, more my view is God is able to heal. Every Christian believes that. Um, God still speaks truth through people who are speaking the scriptures. That, that would be our view of prophecy in that, in that sense. And I wouldn't be surprised there are still people who supernaturally given the ability to speak another language so that Jesus could be spoken in someone's heart language. I mean, those things, we have those stories, and I'm okay with that. You know, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. I love that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, if on Sunday morning, David, you start speaking in tongues, the elder, this is probably, I mean, we're going to wing it, but it's probably what we're going to happen is we're going to say, David, we love you. And do you have an interpret, interpretation of what you're saying? Because we're going to submit to the authority of the scriptures. And if we don't stop and pray, say, Lord, somebody tell us what David is saying. <laughs> if Ray, do you have anything? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, that, but then that's still, that, that becomes a place where we would go in and say, you're speaking in tongues. You're, you're doing your worship service in this particular way. What wisdom does 1 Corinthians 14 have for you? What's going to benefit non-Christians when they come into the room? They need to hear the gospel in a way that, you know, Prophecy is what shows everyone, you know, they, they see the glory of God and they fall on their face, not speaking different languages. Um, but if you do it, have an interpretation so that everyone may be edified. And that, that just brings order no matter what culture you're in and however, how emotional you are. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. You guys can tag team it. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let me close in prayer if there's no other questions. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace and, and your mercy. We thank you for the person of Jesus who submitted even to death on a cross to those scriptures we could not. And so we, we praise you for your, your forgiveness, for his resurrection and ascension, and pray you would just teach us. Continue to, to use your word to correct us, rebuke us, comfort us, change us, so that we might reflect the image of Jesus to the world and be a people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.